Hello, everybody. Welcome to MHTV. I'm really, really pleased to introduce our guest in just one second. But first of all, um, I'll hand you over to Vanessa so that she can tell you how you can join in tonight. And our subject is going to be uh, research, getting published and sort of finding balance and, and making sure that you're able to, to keep going on your journey. So, Vanessa. Hello, everybody. Um, welcome to tonight's session. Um, I've actually just arrived um, on my holiday in Cornwall. Um, so, but I'll be doing the social media tonight, Wi-Fi permitting. Um, if you'd like to join the conversation, you can join in two ways. You can either go onto the Unite MHNA page, like the page, and add any comments there and watch the live stream there. Or if you prefer Twitter, you can go over to Twitter and if you type in the hashtag MHTV and your comments there and I'll feed them into um, tonight's programme. Fantastic. That sounds great. Um, so let me hand you over now to Leanne, who's going to introduce herself and tell you a little bit about um, where she is in her nursing journey at the moment. Well, so my name's Leanne. Um, I'm currently a substance misuse nurse. I've been qualified for about 10 months now. Um, I have a new job that I got today that I'm going to do in uh, gender-based violence. I'm very excited about that. Um, I've also just completed my master's degree um, in applied social research. Completed, but also sort of still doing my um, thesis. So just wrapping up, basically. So what research are you looking at at the moment? So <laughs> this has been, I suppose, the, the interesting question, I think, mm. of the whole master's degree. All the assignments are in, and I'm still umming and eyeing over what to do my thesis in. At the minute, I'm quite interested in um gender-based violence and elderly um mm. populations um i think there's quite a gap in the research there in terms of what we know and certainly from a nursing perspective mm. the kind of limited information that i've been able to come across so far is that um as with any gender-based violence it primarily affects women mm. and it takes the form of neglect more than um, other kinds of violence and abuse. So I'm quite interested in, in looking at that a bit more, getting some more information and then thinking about how we approach that from a nursing perspective, how we would tackle that mm. in practice, basically. So that's where I'm at now. I've had many other ideas along the way, but that's what I've settled on this time. <laughs> and the reason we wanted to sort of uh, speak with Leanne at this stage is because um, research journeys are long, they'll go over your whole career. So when you're a student nurse, you maybe you look at research and think about how you might use it in essays and how you might use it to support your understanding. When you start off in practice and you keep an eye on it, although I have to say when you first start in practice, it's very easy to let go of research and actually just think about what do I need to do to get through this day? Mm -hmm. So we're we'll talking a little bit about how you can keep uh, connected to research. Um, and then when you first start, maybe you do a master's or you do you come on to somebody else's research project to think about how um, you can keep informing your practice, keep growing, keep growing our knowledge base. Um, we wanted to look at that stage. And then at some point in the future, um, because we've got um, the MHNR conference coming up, so that's um, Mental Health Nursing Research Conference, we'll have a lot of people who are, are much further on in their careers and they've been you know, um, professors for a long time and, and publishing research for a long time. But I think it's sometimes much easier to get a handle on an idea if you think about people who are early career researchers, as we call them, and because that's often a lot more accessible. So those are the sorts of things that we're going to be talking about today. So please feel free to join in if you have any questions. Um, but I think one of the things that Leanne said that's super interesting is 
this idea that sometimes when you see other people's research, you make this assumption that research just comes out fully formed and you just do it. Whereas the fact is, you go down a few blind alleys, at least. So can you tell us a little bit about um, what first got you interested in doing research and, and how your journey came to include research? So I think this isn't my first degree in nursing. I had a degree before in French, which is somewhat unrelated, but took me down a, a writing career path uh, in the interim. Um, and I think I've always been a writer, always somebody who enjoys exploring ideas. Um, I wanted to do that in a kind of more um, formal discovery oriented kind of way rather than just as much as I love an editorial, something um, that kind of contributed to knowledge. So it's something that I've kind of always been inclined toward. And I was quite lucky in my course that a lot of the focus was on our capacity to engage with and contribute to research. And I think that's kind of a focus a lot of the time now in, in nursing to shape, I suppose, the future um, cohorts to, to be thinking more about uh, research and how they can contribute. So there are lots of different ways where that sort of, I was already inclined toward it and the message was kind of given to me at a formative stage of my career. So it got me thinking about it and how I could be involved in that. And I was really lucky to, um, I suppose, connect with some people who were quite keen on supporting students to not just kind of think about research, um, and academia but to really engage with it so I've made some connections as well that have kind of helped me to, mm. to publish things so far so yeah a bit of everything I kind of guess brought me here. So it's about being open a little bit isn't it so as you said so some people were able to help you seeing seeing a need for things so when you were talking about how you figured out a research topic you were talking about gaps in our knowledge understanding so what do you mean by that? For people maybe that, that haven't heard that phrase before. So I suppose when you're first doing um, an undergraduate degree, you're kind of learning to um, understand the research, you're learning to analyse it in a way to decide is it good research, is it not good research. And then when you move to kind of a postgraduate um, degree, you're looking at how you can contribute to the mm. existing knowledge base. So I suppose what I mean by a gap in knowledge is what do we not know about a subject yet? quite straightforward I suppose and mm. how can I learn more about this to be mm. able to add to the existing knowledge that we have and plug some of the gaps certainly not all of them um, but contribute something I suppose there so that's what postgrad usually will be looking at supporting mm. people to do. Mm. Is there anything you wanted to say Vanessa if you want to jump in do if not um, no, I'm just focusing on the um, social, social media. media. All right, we'll just wait if you want to. Yeah, I will do, yeah. So the other thing I thought that you said that, that maybe we could just delve into a little bit was this idea as well about the tension between wanting to create something spectacular and new and then something that's useful and then something that get published. So tell me a little bit about um, those sort of contradictions that seem to happen. So for me, it's been, um, it's, when I first came into the master's degree, I thought to myself, I don't know if I'll have a really great idea. I don't know what I want to research. I just know that I love research and I'd like to learn more about how to do research well. Um, and applied social research was quite good for that in that I could look at um, different aspects of research um, and also, you know, complete certain modules as well that kind of gave me a grounding and an understanding. And, um, 
so it's quite good in that respect. But actually what I found was when I started really thinking about what would I like to research, there were um, quite a lot of ideas, too many ideas in a way to whittle down. Uh, it felt like anyway. So I kind of bounced through a few different ideas. I initially started out thinking about um, my life and my kind of practice, which I was quite new at, I suppose, in nursing. And I think there's probably something to be said for having done nursing for a couple of years before doing postgraduate, if you're not sure what you want to um, research, because then you can kind of draw from your experience. But <clears throat> I started looking at my kind of personal life, things that I thought were missing maybe in relation to what was known about um, people with learning disabilities. My youngest daughter is learning disabled. So I thought about that first because that was something that I knew that I could kind of learn more about and contribute to as well. And then I came to thinking about COVID because that was very current because, you know, when you're trying to do a piece of research, you're also thinking about how you would get that published. And so along came COVID and, and some kind of part of me thought, well, this would be great to capitalise on. Let's learn something about this because we know absolutely nothing about this. So um, when you're doing kind of postgraduate research thesis, master's dissertation, you're aiming to get it published. Mm very easy then to go if you do a good piece of research on something we know absolutely nothing about to get that published but things move so quickly and I've moved on from that again to to something that I think I have a, a long-standing interest in um, and that I think ultimately what I've settled on is what can I contribute to in my area of interest yeah um, that's really important yeah, and so that's kind of where I've landed with it at the minute. So wanting to get it published, really important, but also no arbitrary contribution to knowledge. It can be something that is personal to you. Um, mm. Important, you know, certainly in disability um, rights, mental health, there will always be those kinds of ways in which lived experience is really important. Yeah. Um, but I think... Another great way of contributing is just to think about what it is that you really are interested in. Um, so that's where I've come to with it, I suppose. Mm. I can see that we're getting some questions in already, so I'll come over to Vanessa. Yeah, so the first question is um, quite interesting, quite similar to what we were talking about last week as well, actually, which is um, about the reluctance of nursing students to get into research and mm believing that it's not relevant to their practice. So the main question is from Alfonso, what advice or tips would you give nursing students and how would you encourage them to get into research? Hmm. It's quite similar to what we were discussing last week, really. Yeah, I think the big thing for me is that I thought it was a lot more kind of mysterious and mm -hmm. common than it actually is. Yeah. Um, so I was kind of waiting to find the, the big piece of information that would kind of bring it all into place for me and I go aha that's what I need to do to get into research but actually you just kind of need to do it um yeah. as a student really you're probably looking to make connections and networks with people whose interests align with your own Twitter is great for that so using social media to kind of grow your professional network and look at what they're publishing and most people from my experience are really keen to work with students and early career researchers and I've never had any boundaries really to working with people so mm. um, I suppose a bit of confidence involved but yeah yeah do you think social media has helped facilitate that 
definitely, absolutely. So I've had people approach me and I've approached other people and I've made most of my professional connections, I suppose, in a research sense, um, yeah. entirely through social media. So it's been, yeah, absolutely. It's been fantastic. Yeah. I think people are a lot more accessible, aren't they, on social media? Yeah. Certainly for me, you know, I spent a lot of my time in practice, but, you know, a few through social media, um, my network's much wider in terms of being connected to academics as well and being able to sort of bridge that theory practice gap. And certainly I know I talk about it every week, but when I worked in the prisons, um, you know, particularly um, valuable there to kind of feel connected to people who are doing really interesting groundbreaking work, particularly around you know, social justice. Um, so, yeah, it's great. And I know, yeah, go on, Nikki. I was going to say, I think for students, it's there's two or three things that make it really different because I went through my degree without really having that much exposure to research. And when I started as a baby nurse, um, not a nurse for babies, obviously, a young practitioner, <laughs> I, um, I, I, made some real mistakes because I, I didn't understand the research I was looking at to make my practice decisions. Yeah. So it was when, um, this is going to date me a little bit now, everyone's so gasp, um, was when um, some of the new antipsychotics were coming out and they were saying they're so much better, they're so much better. Yeah. If I'd known now what I knew then and I looked at the, the, the way that they'd structured that research, it was BS, frankly, that they were way better. But I looked yeah. at it and I looked at the graph and I thought, oh, thank goodness, things are getting better. And I know that I advocated and I and I made uh, practice choices based on the fact that I thought I was advocating for a, a wholly better product that yeah. would actually help people to um, to be well and to, to live their lives the way they wanted to. Um, and it was because I had a poor understanding of quantitative research. Yeah. And also because I didn't know to look for qualitative research. Mm -hmm. So quantitative is when people look for numbers and they look at big scale. Qualitative mm -hmm. is when people look at experience and they'll often be using words or art or creative, more creative perhaps, yeah. uh, methodologies. So neither is better or, or than the other. They just ask, answer different questions. And I, I didn't know to look for where's the, where's the service user voice in all this? Um, what, where's this stuff co-produced? How does this apply to practice? You know, all those kind of really practical things. And I think when you teach or try and um, encourage um, students or new practitioners to keep going with the research, um, you need to have um, the skills to understand whether you're being told the truth or not mm, yeah. by, by the information. Because information is just data and it can be dressed up any, any way. So if somebody is suggesting that something is better or, or another option um, has a, a better result, you need to make sure that actually that data is good quality data. Yeah, and the other thing I think is just being a bit confident about the the language and the words that are being used in research. And it's so weird because in nursing, we have our own nursing vocabulary, then we learn all the biomedical vocabulary, then we have our own speech in, and, and, and um, communication styles, and then we have we adapt to what the service user needs. But at no point do we think, well, just to add research into that, because that's just another language that we can use. And I think a lot of people put that barrier up, as Alfonso was saying, right at the start, and think, I'm, I, I don't understand, so I'm not going to be smart enough to understand this. If you make any decisions in your life based on what you think is true or not, you can understand research and whether it actually is helpful or not. And I think there is something about the way that maybe it's been taught in the past, which makes it feel quite elitist or quite separate. But without it, you know, we can't be a profession if we don't have our own knowledge, if we don't create our own understanding and we don't work with service users and practitioners to make sure that actually the things that we're doing are evidence-based. So it's so, so important. Mm -hmm. And it's something that always gets pushed to the back of the pile. 
you know, you get some people so interested in being technicians. I want to be able to take bloods. I want to be able to do that. And that's great. So great. But it's not more important than knowing when something is um, true or not. Mm. You know, particularly in this day and age when the truth appears to be a bit of a movable feast at the moment, doesn't it? You need to be able to choose for yourself and make good decisions for yourself based on evidence. So uh, was there another question I saw there? Yeah, there is. Yeah. So um, mm. the next question is... Um, kind of related in a sense um how do we encourage nurses who are critical of practice to start audit and to get that published which is some of what nikki's just been talking about in a sense if something doesn't feel right analyze it write it up or create a poster and then just a comment to say that um, medics are very good at these pdsa cycles and i i, I agree with that actually because i was just thinking as nikki was talking that um, when I started my nursing career, you know, research just wasn't on the agenda at all. And then I did a psychology degree in my mid-20s because I was kind of feeling a bit disillusioned by nursing. I didn't like that either because it was really quantitative um, focus, numbers and, and science. And then, but I think in the last 10 years, I think um, research, maybe it's just me and kind of the, the space that I'm in, but I think that research feels like it's more on the agenda. We feel... I've kind of started to like numbers again now because I see, you know, benefit in terms of, you know, using data when we're improving practices or changing practices. But like Nikki says, the data only tells us so much. And um, my main love is is qualitative because I'm kind of it kind of fits with what I'm good at, I suppose, and what I'm interested in, which is people's experiences and stories. So I think um I think that's a really important question that we've just had. Um, so what was the question? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, I, honestly, I was listening to you and then I suddenly thought, do you know what? I can't remember what the question was. Yeah, it's quite a big... Probably back to the start again. Yeah, so it's quite, um, it's quite a detailed question. But basically, the question is, how do we encourage nurses who are critical of practice to start doing audit and to get their audits published? And then um, just an observation that if something doesn't feel right, you should analyse it, write it up, create a poster... And then the final um, comment was just about how medics are good at these cycles. Mm -hmm. um, I guess nurses aren't traditionally. So it's Join a Leanne. Really there. What do you think? Yeah, well, I think I always bring it back to um, what do you learn as part of your degree? Are you preparing students to be academically minded? You always get people who aren't interested in research, and that's fine as well um, to a degree. I think it's important mm. that people are able to understand and interpret and use research mm. to be um, evidence-based and to keep up to date with um, the evidence supporting their practice. And really, I think it's up to universities to inspire that kind of um, yeah. confidence and that sort mm. of image of the profession. I think within medicine, it's very much publish, publish, publish right from the word go. And they just kind of have that um, mindset and view of themselves. So I think if nursing sees itself as a an evidence-based, research-oriented profession, those sorts of things tend to come along with it. Um, I'm sure it's not without its challenges, but certainly I think if it's on the agenda and it's a high priority, I think academia's got a good role in shaping the way that the profession views itself. Mm. There's something to be said as well about um, advocating it, reporting it, talking about it. I mean, think, even if you just have um, a journal club at work or you pick something once a month to um, look at as a team in your, you know, part of your team day or something, that stuff makes a huge amount of difference because people 
people's confidence grows and being able to talk about research, thinking about how it can be applied. And also people are doing, well, researchers are doing a much better job, I think, of being accessible than they used to be. And there's some some pretty out there things. I don't know if anyone's seeing Dance Your PhD. Google it. It will blow your mind. (laughs) So Dance Your PhD is when people have a complicated PhD premise and they work with um, dancers to or, or movement specialists to make it make sense. And I know I watched one that was a very kind of complicated biological process. I would have had no idea what they were talking about if I'd have just had the words um, that the researchers had written. But with the dance, I was like, oh, okay. No, no, I get what you I mean. It's weird, but I get what you mean. <laughs> and I think mental health nurses have a lot more of a kind of like, no, no, I don't mind if it's weird as long as it makes sense to me. Something mm-hmm. around, you know, thinking about blogs, thinking about podcasts, thinking about um, sites which actually pricey or, or summarize research and and critique it. That stuff's really important for people to keep an eye on and, and to follow and to be interested in. So things like mental health are really useful mm-hmm. for that. You know, so don't don't feel that you have to be reading like these massive research books. You can actually, you know, anything like nursing practice uh, will have that stuff summarized for you. So it's about not being scared of it a little bit, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. So that kind of brings us on a little bit to um, the dreaded publication journey. So I wondered what your thoughts were on that, Liam. I think I've been really lucky so far in that mm. my kind of foray into it was alongside um, other academics who had much more experience than me. Um, so when those first kind of reviewer comments come through it's not quite so personal seeming I suppose it's a a shared effort and I'm just a student and learning here because I was a student when I first um, Mm -hmm. published so yeah it's an interesting journey there's lots of rejection and commentary on your work along the way that you have to kind of learn to be open to uh, even Mm -hmm. if you disagree heartily yeah, I think it's I think it works quite well alongside nursing in that it's kind of a reflective experience when you're kind of going back over your work and your words and what you've said and what you're trying to say and incorporating the comments and, mm. and feedback and how do you not kind of lose the original intention. Mm. Sometimes it can be a case of this is going to change the piece. We are with what we were hoping to achieve. Let's look mm. at the journal let's think about another place for this and that's happened and that's I think that's fine I think sometimes you have to maintain some integrity with it as well taking the feedback but also maintaining what it is that you wanted to say or what it is that you wanted to show certainly with editorials I think that's probably particularly true yeah absolutely so I think if you're trying to get published you need to think about what information you've got and where it fits because I think one of the big things that people make mistakes with is they have something that's actually an editorial so that's kind of commentary and a Mm. viewpoint and they try and get it published in a in a research journal and if you have um, something which is um, your point of view it's not better or worse it's just different type of information so make sure you're not getting your heart broken all the time and getting put off by putting your information in the wrong place so figure out what kind of research you've got um, and where it best fits um, and the thing is, everybody produces um, writing or publication guides. So if you Google, uh, so suppose you have a favorite journal that you read or a place where you actually find lots of stuff that you find useful and it sort of vibes with the work that you do, then read their publication guide. And also it never hurts to um, email them and say, this is my idea. Is it something you'd be interested in before you go down that big old route? Because the publication journey is often quite automated now. So there's a lot of uploading, 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 uploading. And you've just got to make sure you give them what they actually ask for. Mm. Because a lot of people, I think, 
uh, aren't quite sure what they've got in terms of information and they put it towards the wrong type of journal and then they wonder why they're getting disappointed all the time. Um, and so I think you're absolutely right. You have to be, you get a bit of a thick skin and keep going and also ask people who've been published before how they did it and if they can look at your work and if they can advise you as well because nurses should help each other. You know, and if you are somebody who's read someone's work and admired it, you know, if you ask them to, to look at your work or to help you or to give you commentary or to even point you towards someone who might be able to help you, the worst they'll ever say to you is, oh, I haven't really got time at the minute, but this is who you could contact. So just don't don't hold back. Exactly as Leanne was saying, you know, find out who's around who can support you. Never be afraid to ask. Um, and you were talking about so um, peer review and, and um, this idea about reviewers feedback. So can you tell us a little bit about that, Leanne, what your what your experience has been with that? Um, yeah, so just that it's very honest and sometimes contradictory as well. Two different reviewers might have entirely different ideas about what what direction you should be taking, what feedback I suppose they give. Mm. Kind of conflicting. So yeah, that can be difficult to decipher. And I think that takes a, a bit of experience as well. And I think that's why it's worth when you're quite new, having that network and working in collaboration with people. All of my kind of papers that I've submitted so far have been in collaboration with people. And that's a really gentle way into it, I think. And once you feel more confident then with incorporating the feedback and deciphering what it is that they're looking for, then mm. you can step out on your own a bit more, I think. Mm. So I think the other thing people don't realize is it takes ages to get published. So yeah. you figure out where you're going to put it, then you send it off, then you forget you've done it, and then you get your feedback. <laughs> And yeah. you have two people will review. So when people are talking about a peer review journal, they're talking about one where two, two people have had a look at your work and um, seen that it's useful, that it's new, that it's adding something to the field. Um, and so um, when you get your feedback, there's, there's lots of jokes about your second reviewer because the first reviewer is always like, oh, that's great. That's really good. That's really interesting. Thanks. Change this little bit. Change that little bit. That's fine. And then this tradition of the, the second reviewer is just like, I hate it. <laughs> it sucks. <laughs> and it can be really hard. And that's what you're sort of saying, you know, sometimes you have this contradictory. Um, I remember when I first started, I got a review back that just said, learn to use a comma. So, thanks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then, you know, I did learn to use a comma and I think my work made a little bit more sense. <laughs> so there's a, there's a lot to be said for um, taking feedback, but also knowing when feedback isn't quite right for you. You know, just because two people who you don't know have said something's not good doesn't mean that it is not savable or it's not right. It might just be you're in the wrong place with the, that information. And um, I'd always go to somebody and ask for some support because I think there's nothing more sort of soul crushing when you've tried really hard to get your ideas together. You've gone through all the process of getting them in and, and it's dismissed. And it's usually because not because the idea is terrible, but because it's in the wrong place. So um, always get some support around that. Yeah, have you got any more questions there coming in, Vanessa? No, we haven't got anything at the moment. So I've just been sharing um, some of the conversation really with people who might be watching on um, on Twitter rather than on Facebook. We did have someone who was struggling to get onto the Facebook page, but I think okay. we've, um, we've resolved that now. Okay. So I've got something from um, uh, Adrian. Yeah, we have got a question. Just come in. Go for it then, yeah. It's probably the same one you're looking at. Is it from Adrian? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it says, um, I think the way which research is taught, no, I, th I think what it's saying is, I think the way that research is taught, it can be quite off-putting for some nurses. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it can be a bit abstract and far-fetched. And um, Adrian says, how can we make it more sexy? <laughs> yeah. Question for you there, Liam. <laughs> I'm not a good authority on that, but I think what you were saying about accessibility is probably um, really important. I'm always quite mindful in any of my writing to use accessible language. I agree. I think if you can't explain a concept to a child, maybe you don't really understand that concept well enough to be able to really be discussing it at all. Um, And I definitely live by that because... Mm. It's so important that people feel that they can access and utilize the research, whether that's somebody with a learning disability or, you know, a really experienced yeah. academic. You want to be able to ensure that actually your research is meeting different populations' needs and, and empowering people, I suppose, to make it choices about themselves as well and their own care in nursing. Mm-hmm. So if I'm writing about something relating to mental health, I want people from all kinds of deprived backgrounds and with different educational abilities to be able to utilise that research to empower themselves and to ask for the kind of care that they think and that they do deserve. So there's that aspect of it too. And I think if you make it accessible for everyone, that makes it a lot less stressful for other nurses, I think, as well, who don't see themselves as very academic. And I think because we've set such a high bar, we've really excluded quite a lot of nurses from get themselves involved and from seeing it as a viable option for themselves they just don't mm. see themselves as, as smart enough and I think we mm. do too much gatekeeping or we have done too much academic mm. gatekeeping and whilst it should always be of a certain you know rigorous standard that doesn't mean that it can't be accessible and understandable for everybody who wants to read it yeah and I think there's something as well that since our research teams have got a tiny bit more diverse and still not brilliant I mean if you had if anyone sort of caught up with the um there was a, a big research grant that came out just recently looking at the impact of COVID on BAME people um, and no people of uh, colour got any decent cash in that at all. And you just think, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. What are you doing? And quite rightly, um, some academics and some researchers all got together and actually just protested it and said this is not acceptable. Mm-hmm. And it caused the kind of trouble, good kind of trouble, um, that you need to have um, to push back on stuff like this. Because if you don't have um, service user voice in your research, if you don't have practitioners in your research, then nobody understands it and nobody can really apply it properly. Um, and also, you know, you see what you want to see. And I think if you are... Um, if you're someone with different types of, say, purely research-orientated background, you don't necessarily even see the importance of making it understandable for people to employ in practice. Because once your once your research cycle is finished, so publication, you've got a really nice and ref score. So that's how people judge uh, the value of um, your research, um, and that's got nothing really, or didn't used to have. I just got better, but it didn't used to really have anything to do with the public. It was basically researchers talking to researchers, and you'd go to research conferences, and it would be just full of researchers. And it was almost like the information was going around in a cycle, um, and and that's really unhelpful because that's not where it's needed. It's needed in in practice areas. It's needed in policy areas. It's needed in areas where people are making decisions about what they're going to fund or what um, ways they're going to work. And if you can't, exactly as Leanne said, if you can't explain it in a way that people can use it, then you're not really producing research information. You're, 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 you're engaged in a cul-de-sac, not a road forward, and that's a real problem. So thinking about, you know, this, this we've talked about the fact that, you know, as Leanne's describing, she's, she's practice, 
<laughs> new job, researching, studying. So there's lots and lots and lots going on. So what what can what can you say, tell us a little bit about you know um, managing your self care and, and thinking about boundaries because you, you're doing lots and lots of things at the same time. Yeah. Have you got any advice? Yeah. Well, so, <laughs> well, more often I think is probably the the best piece of advice. But that's really hard at first. You know, you come into nursing and. I think quite a lot of people see all these amazing opportunities and possibilities and certainly as a student there's lots of different ways to be involved and I think a lot of people come in and see more possibilities than they imagined and um, the second that you start saying yes to things people really want you to say yes to lots of more things so they're really keen to have you involved and at first that feels really great it's quite flattering and after a while it's really tiring actually mm. <laughs> done for a few times and you start to think about where you draw the line and, and how you say no to people and, and what does that mean? Does it mean I'll miss out on other opportunities? Will they not ask me again? So I think that's something that um, over time I've developed some confidence with, you know, knowing when it's okay to yeah. say no, that it's not going to be the end of my career because I said no to this one person and, and that's it now. Everyone's going to hear that I'm just not interested in engaging. You know, it happens. And yeah, so it's absolutely uh, true. Uh-huh. So I've gotten better at that, I think. Um, mm. I think I'm still quite prone to <clears throat> piling a bit too much onto my plate. Um, I think sometimes I quite like that to an extent, being busy and a bit chaotic. I think that's what draws me to areas like substance misuse. <clears throat> no two days are the same. There's always something new and stimulating going on. Mm. I don't know if that's just something to do with me and I quite like constant mental mm. stimulation. So. It's been quite good in, in that sense, having different things to think about. Um, but, you know, I have small children. I have a work-life balance to strike. Yeah. And one of the things that um, I was asked today in my interview was, what would your colleagues say about you? What would they say you were really good at? What would they say you were actually quite bad at? And when I thought about it, actually, it was the same thing, is that I just work excessively and never take a break and I never have my lunch break and I always stay late and it's that really cliche of I'm such a perfectionist but actually if you're somebody who just can't seem to stop and has a lot of self-doubt about I suppose saying no and, and drawing those balances then it can very quickly get on top of you so it's something that I think has come with time and experience being able to say no and also how that applies to practice as well of you know I just I will do this tomorrow I need to go home and see my family I have a family to get to Mm. Um, and I'm also really clear about my weekends and my weekends. So I work Monday to Friday um, and then I do nothing at the weekends, maybe a little bit of writing, but mostly nothing at the weekends. And I use that time to spend time with my family. We go on big, long walks. We go outside and I'm just very present then with them, basically. So that's a quite a good balance for me. I tend to refuse things that would eat into my weekend time, and I'm quite strict about that. So it's probably easier if you're a community nurse than mm. if your shifts are all over the place. But having that designated time of this is just for me mm. is really important, yeah. I think. Yeah, I agree. What do you think, Vanessa? Because you're also somebody who juggles lots of different roles. Yeah, I think it can be very difficult and I don't think there's any easy easy way for me I found um I left the NHS about six years um which is maybe not a popular thing to say and I've worked independently since then and I still do a lot of work that has influence on the NHS but I do it from the outside looking in and the reason there's two reasons one is professionally 
I found that I wanted to, um, you know, challenge practice and change practice and I could have more influence on the outside looking in. But secondly, on a personal level, having two children and actually I'm now a single mother as well, um, being able to, you know, work and juggle everything was just an impossibility for me. And mm. I've just found that the only way I can, um, you know, do the work that I want to do with value without compromising my time with my children and family and, and going away like I'm away at the moment mm. is, um, you know, is through working independently. So I'm not saying that's for everybody, but that's that's what I found. And it's sad, really, that, you know, people can't have that flexibility still within the NHS. And I guess by people, I'm mostly talking about women because it's generally women, isn't it, who, who um, you know, have most of the caregiving responsibilities. And I know there are some great, you know, single dads out there, and that's usually a comment that comes back to me. But the fact is that it is the majority of women, isn't it, in those positions. So, yeah, it's really pertinent to me. It is interesting, isn't it? Because people were saying, you know, with COVID and with us remote, remote working, we'd have a lot more flexibility and there would be a lot more opportunity to plan your time as you need to but I think what we've seen in terms of research is that research by women has plummeted absolutely plummeted so the numbers of of manuscripts coming in the numbers of publications is actually going down and that I think has been really interesting to see Mm -hmm. because we still have um, a lack of equality I think around who does what what I mean I yeah I don't know about you Leanne but I really struggled during the lockdown so a lot of people you know had loads of lovely new hobbies and various other things and took time out reading books and stuff but for me I was the busiest I'd ever been because I was on my own with two children who I'm supposed to be homeschooling um and they didn't do (laughs) you heard it here first (laughs) yeah I didn't do much at all of that I gave up on that and I was trying to work and run the house and run my business at the same time and obviously not have the usual support that I've got so, um, yeah, so it's very difficult. And I'm sure, you know, thousands of women were in the same position as, as me on that one. Um, what was your experience, Leanne? How did you manage over that period? I think something has to give, doesn't it? Definitely. Yeah. You can't do all the things. And I think you do feel that pressure as a mom and a woman yeah. as well, trying to, to do everything, basically, to be everything mm-hmm. for everybody. Um, really, our house just got very messy. Yeah. I had a lot of for the the clutter. It just had to be left the other day. That was the thing that went for me. Obviously, Mm. clean clothes and and what have you. And I was quite fortunate that um, we have kind of like a flipped dynamic and that my husband's home a lot and works Mm. from home. Um, I think he kind of probably shouldered a lot of the burden of Mm. helping children with home education. My eldest is unusually... um, focused and committed to her schoolwork so she would get up in the morning do all of her schoolwork and then scan it in and upload it before anybody else had really even kind of had their first drink of the day. <laughs> yeah she doesn't get it from me um and so she was up and good to go uh youngest just nothing nothing yeah. you just kind of we did a lot of we learned a lot in that time but it wasn't necessarily schoolwork so yeah agree kind of yeah child as well I would never have kind of pushed the issue um, mm them so we just kind of did what was working best for us and let's slide the things that weren't very important I suppose yeah and I so that's the idea about prioritizing them isn't it so mm. we've talked a little bit about how you make how you prioritize and, and what, what comes first and I think it's really clear isn't it people come first yeah the rest of it just has to fit in and that is absolutely brilliant so what about saying no have you anyone got any tips for you know what you decide to say no to <laughs> 
um, I think because that I think saying no is really hard to work. Yeah, I think I, the way that I approach it now is partly selfish, partly selfless, I suppose. If it's somebody who I think I could really help in some way, you know, a part of their project or something they want to do, and I think it could be really helpful and beneficial, then I'll dedicate some time to that. Um, and then on the flip side, if I don't think it's particularly useful and certainly not to me, which sounds very selfish, you know, if I'm just kind of pouring my time into something to get not much back and I don't see a huge amount of value in it, then I find that a bit easier to say no. I think I'm probably used to saying yes to people just to be kind, but I've had to learn to be a bit more kind of focused on what is going to be good for me as well as other people. Yeah. I think there's something about the emotional load of work as well for me. I think, you know, in the early days, particularly with this kind of work, I might have taken on more and not appreciated how much um, reflection time that I need and actually how long work can take because mm-hmm. I can't buy a load of work out. Um, you know, I'm a reflector. I need to think about it. And it's really important to me that it's meaningful. So now I need to build time into my week that allows me to do that. And that's when I do my best work and when I'm the most creative. But I also think um, I've learned to say no as well, not just for my benefit, but for other people's benefit. Because probably, you know, in the past few years back, I might have taken on too much and then not been able to deliver. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And then I feel bad and I can't get things done. And also, finally, I'd say that, you know, working independently and doing a lot of social media work, I get a lot of people asking me to do work pro bono without being paid for it. And again, um, you know, it's all this, it'd be really good for you to do this and get involved in this. And, you know, but there's no budget to mind doing it for free. And what I've realised is um, I can't live for nothing. I've got to pay my bills and I've got to feed my children. And if I'm doing work for everybody else for free, that takes me away from my children and my family. And I know people talk about this a lot on social media and that they've had similar experiences. So I know it's not just me, but I guess I'm airing it here because I think it's, you know, an important thing for us to talk about, really. Absolutely. And I think that's also, I was going to say something about that, because mm-hmm. one of the ways that people, I think, in other jobs decide whether they're going to do something is whether or not it's paid or not. But none of it really is paid. In, <laughs> yeah, in yeah, exactly. Yeah. That kind of like criteria, doesn't it? Yeah. I, I guess for me, about saying no is um, absolutely, can you actually do it in time? Because okay. the time that it takes for thinking time, I never used to add in. But the other thing I would say, just to counteract that, is um, if you think that you can sort of do something, don't immediately reject it out of hand. Yeah. Because it's, you're not perfect to do it. And um, mm. often, if you're pretty good and you have a lot of the same, the right skills, don't just assume you're not going to be able to do it. Go for it, or say, actually, I can do it. I need a bit of support with this. Um, because if you only do things you're perfect at, you'll never learn and you'll never grow. And I think this is an, I know we're talking about, about lady issues tonight, but I think it's a, an issue with women in that they often mm-hmm. want to be perfect before they volunteer something, before they agree to do something. You don't need to be perfect. If, yeah. if you've learned nothing from MHTV, <laughs> it's more important to give it a go than to, and, and to, to have an intention to, to accomplish something than it is really to be absolutely perfect at it. I think Mm -hmm. otherwise nothing ever happens, nothing ever changes and you never get any kind of diversity of voices or opinions. Everyone just is already brilliant. And who can learn from that? It's very Mm -hmm. discouraging. 
And that links to what we were talking about last week, doesn't it? About developing good networks and good mentors and sort of challenging the imposter syndrome that we all get now and then. Um, mm. Definitely a recurring theme with the women in particular, isn't it? That we've had on Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's clearly an issue. So we're, we're really near the end now. This is whiz by. We're already off, really at finish time. <laughs> so Leanne has been fantastic. She shared her thoughts on research, on getting published, and that finding work-life balance. So what we'll do is I'll come to you both and see if you've anything that you want to add. Um, and also, Vanessa, if you just check if we've got any more questions before we get, before we get gone. Yeah. Um, All right. We've got um, something here from Adrian, um, mm -hmm. which is talking about audit um all trusts have an audit officer yeah it's just basically a bit of advice saying that all um mm -hmm. nhs trusts have an audit officer he found that befriending them was really useful and i would mm -hmm. agree with that i've worked closely with them um, with audit um departments mm -hmm. and they're great aren't they for helping you kind of get the information that you need as mm -hmm. well sometimes you don't always have to do it yourself but it's knowing yeah. so to any thoughts on that leanne before we finish yeah, I suppose just to add to that as well, um, I signed up for uh, being on the email mailing list of the research and development team as well. Um, it's been really interesting in that I think if you're a new nurse and you or a nurse, I suppose at any point in your career, you're thinking about research to get those emails about what's happening and, and the ways that you can get involved and also some additional training that's on offer. I think that's worth making those connections there too. That's really good advice. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of writing, don't forget that you can start with things like blogs and book reviews. You don't need to start with a massive randomised control trial. That doesn't need to happen as your first step. It's about maybe um, starting to get confident about using your voice, making sure that you've got something that's, that you want to say. Um, don't forget as well the Mental Health Nursing Journal. Um, we've tweeted out the um, publication guidance for that. So if you do want to get involved in, in writing or talking about your experience or even thinking about um, types of research project, um, then let us know or let your local trust know, let your local university know. Um, people are looking to collaborate and there is a lot more scope now on people um, who are members of different communities participating in research. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of big mental health research groups that are around and about and absolutely looking for uh, community members, uh, people with lived experience to join their team. So don't don't be shy coming forward. Mm. Um, and for publishing, just keep going. Don't give up. Keep going for that. Um, any, and any last words before we check out? Vanessa? Um, no, I just think it's been a really interesting discussion and it's really interesting how we build on themes week after week. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of what we've talked about tonight, we, we've, you know, we've touched on before, particularly around the importance of collaboration, um, networks, believing in yourself, that everyone's mm -hmm. got something to contribute, everyone should have a voice and making things accessible and inclusive. They're all the things that I take from tonight that I think are really important. So it's been really interesting, Leanne. Thank you. I've really enjoyed um, the conversation with you tonight. It's been great. Well, thank, thank you. Good chat. All right, then. Uh, thank you very much for the people who have joined in with the discussions. Um, if you want to add to them, please feel free to use the hashtags and we'll come back and have a look in the week as well. So if you've anything you want to add to that, please do. But other than that, it just remains for us to say good night and thank you very much for your time. Good night. Bye. Bye. <laughs>